You probably have a shirt that is at least six years old, don't you think? Unless you're five years old, chances are you do. Might even have pants, maybe even a pair of running shoes, and they might not even be the ones that you use to cut the lawn. Six years? Goes by in a flash. Anybody have a burger that's six years old? Cheeseburger, specifically from McDonald's? I don't know if you're looking for one of those, but we found someone who does have that, and he's selling it, and he's going to join us on the show in about 35 minutes. His name is Dave Alexander, and the burger actually comes from London, just in case you were worried you'd be buying a burger from Kitchener or Windsor that was six years old. He advises not to eat it. Our biggest question, why does he have it? We'll find that out. And why is he selling it? And here's a question that we may not be able to answer. Why is the bidding on eBay over $50 for this burger? 35 minutes. We'll find the answers to those questions. Also this hour, Nikki Reitmeyer is going to join us. Nikki is the host of a podcast that you have to check out. There's a podcast that is out there called The Daily, and it's really well done. It's done by the New York Times, and it explores basically American news stories. Well, I don't want to put words in in Nikki's mouth because I don't know that they've designed it to do this, but it reminds me of that podcast, but with a Canadian angle. So if you're a fan of The Daily from the New York Times, you are going to be a fan of This Is Why. And we'll talk with Nikki, not just about the podcast, but we're going to talk about the latest episode in which she explores gang violence in Canada and actually had a gang member from a nameless gang in Canada come into the studio with her. And one of the things that he was concerned about was being identified because he's not a happy gang member. But he said, can you please disguise my voice? Can you please not use my name, not use the gang, not tell anybody about this? Because I don't want to leave this studio and get a bullet in my back. But he talked to her. And we will talk to her as well. We are also going to look at hallway medicine stats and an idea that's coming from Western University that appears to be attempting to make changes to some of the hallway medicine procedures that exist now. So we'll find out about that. And we'll also talk with Steve and Caleb Boyle on the show today. Caleb is eight, and he's a member of Team Canada. We keep running into all of these Londoners who are under the age of 10. Remember the girls from the inline hockey team? Well, similar. But Caleb is somebody who is on Team Canada for karate. And we'll find out exactly how he got himself there. Plus, we are going to be talking in about 10 minutes from now with Ward 4 Councillor Jesse Helmer because electric buses came up in the conversation in London Transit. This is actually something we will explore on Monday and maybe even on Tuesday as well from different perspectives. Remember Stratford had been named as the location for a pilot project for autonomous vehicles? Well... Do we know what's happening with that? We're going to on Monday because we're going to be joined by Stratford Mayor Dan Matheson. And we're also going to head to Detroit next week. And we will uncover how things are going because they have a pilot project of sorts that is underway. But electric buses have been brought up. And anybody who has been wishing for London Transit to 
send buses or vehicles or horse-drawn carriages. I don't think they care. I think they just want to get to where they have been unable to go because there are some workplaces out in some of the industrial areas that they have not been able to reach using LTC. Well, that's being addressed, and we'll get the details on that in about 10 minutes. First, though, we are thrilled to have the Ontario Minister of Infrastructure, as named one week ago. With us on London Live, please welcome Lambton Kent Middlesex MPP, Mr. Monty McNaughton. Mr. McNaughton, how's Friday? Uh, it's going very well, Mike. Hope all things hope things are well with you. Things are great. Congratulations on the cabinet position. Well, thank you very much. It's been a, a busy week. We were sworn in uh, last Friday, and we we hit the ground running, reaching out to municipal leaders and and other stakeholders across the province. So it's been a, a busy week. Lots of learning. Can you take us behind the scenes? How do you find out about an appointment like that? Do, do you get a call the day before? Do you do you get one of those? Because at work, a lot of us get the old finger wag. Hey, come here for a second. And there's always the finger wag into an office. How does it work for politics? Yeah, it was um, it was a, a phone call uh, in advance of the uh, swearing in, and of course, uh, the swearing in was um, eleven o'clock last Friday, and. Um, I kept it uh, confidential, as uh, did all my other uh, cabinet colleagues, and invited uh, family up for the swearing-in, and even they didn't know I was going to be uh, named a cabinet minister. So it was uh, quite exciting and uh, obviously uh, truly honoured and humbled to serve um, as Minister of Infrastructure for Ontario. That's that's amazing. Now, how tough a secret was that to keep? Did you ever get to a point where you were with your family and you just, you just, you just want to burst? Well, I mean, obviously, uh, obviously, at times, um, uh, you know, I was thinking uh, that and, and wanting to burst, but um, it was, uh, you know, it's, it's the way it has to be done. And um, it was, uh, it was a great day last Friday to have my mom and dad and my wife Kate and four-year-old daughter uh, Annie there. Um, was really uh, just a, a great moment and exciting moment, and I look forward to you know, working for the people of Ontario in the next four years. Good stuff. Well, congratulations. Why don't we dig into one of the big issues that will be presented, and that is high-speed rail. And we had heard, of course, when the Liberals were in power, some of their plans. What can you tell us about high-speed rail and this particular area? Well, obviously uh, an exciting uh, project, lots of excitement um, uh, in the region. Um, We said quite clearly, uh, Premier Doug Ford said during the campaign that we would uh, fund an environmental uh, assessment and uh, we'll do that. We we look forward to the results uh, of that. Um, So uh, as I said last Friday, I was sworn in, I started reaching out to uh, individuals across the province, municipalities, and um, doing a broad consultation on a, on a number of projects. Now, with regard to high-speed rail, the idea obviously is to get it from Windsor to London to Kitchener-Cambridge to Toronto, all of those things. Uh, that kind of thing doesn't quite happen overnight. So how groundwork are, and groundbreaking are we expected to get in the next four years? Well, it is a, a long process. Obviously, uh, this project, like uh, many others, um, takes a lot of money uh, to build, so uh, the background work has to be done uh, properly. Um, the environmental assessment is ongoing right now. One of the things that I have uh, said, I know uh, the uh, Minister of Agriculture and Rural Affairs, Ernie Hardiman, has also said that um, we have to get the consultation piece right. 
So there are a number of uh, municipal leaders uh, in our region, as well as uh, agricultural groups who want to be consulted more on this. Um, So I know uh, the Minister of Transportation and Minister of Agriculture and myself will be speaking to a number of those uh, individuals and groups uh, in the uh, weeks ahead. It would be almost much easier if we were talking not about high-speed rail, but uh, about high-speed flight, because then we wouldn't have to worry about the agriculture part of things. We wouldn't have to worry about the rural part of things. But, Mr. McNaughton, we've had conversations with people who are very afraid that they're going to see their farm either cut in half by a rail or not be able to get to their neighbors because you can't cross these high-speed rail tracks. Those are issues that are, are definitely out there. How do you address things like that and still come up with high-speed rail? Well, that's true, and I think that's a very, very valid point. I've raised that uh, in the last couple of years um, when I was just the MPP for Lambton-Kent Middlesex uh, in opposition. One of the suggestions I had to the former Premier was to have uh, an agricultural uh, group's leader uh, on the committee that was looking at high-speed rail. Uh, I think there have been certain uh, sectors and certain groups and individuals that uh, weren't consulted, and the farming community uh, is one of them. And you're right, there are a whole host of uh, issues um, uh, with regards to high-speed rail, and, and that's one of them, the breaking up of, uh, of family farms. Do you think it's a, a real possibility that we may one day have to just say, well, in order to have high-speed rail, we have to have this? Well, I, again, I look forward to um, you know seeing the results of the environmental assessment. Uh, ministers, um, the agricultural minister, the minister of transportation, myself, will have more to say uh, on this uh, in the future. Um, but I think it's you know one step at a time, one day at a time, and, and we have to go through uh, the proper process from the EA to uh, the consultation process. We're talking with the Minister of Infrastructure in Ontario, Lambton-Kent Middlesex MPP, Monty McNaughton. Mr. McNaughton, outside of high-speed rail, I don't know how much of of your time that will tie up, but what else do you see as being issues that will be and need to be addressed? Well, I I think, um, you know, first of all, we've got to have a relationship uh, in Ontario with uh, the federal government. The federal government plays a, a large role in infrastructure uh, in the province, one of my responsibilities is to uh, negotiate a, a deal for Ontario to ensure that we get uh, federal dollars to help us um, right across the province uh, build important uh, infrastructure projects. I think, secondly, uh, we can do better uh, getting value for money uh, with the projects that uh, we build. And um, I think there's going to be a big emphasis right across all different ministries under uh, Premier Doug Ford that we're getting the best deal. Uh, for taxpayers on these projects. So those will be two major things that we'll be uh, looking at uh, right out of the gate. It's an interesting time to be involved in infrastructure. I mean, even in London, Ontario, we have seen infrastructure issues addressed where if we look over the years, a lot of times municipalities, cities will say, you know what, we'd like to do that, but nobody can really see some of the infrastructure issues that we're dealing with. So, eh, we'll push them off to the next budget. We'll push. How many municipalities and cities do you expect to, to take big initiative projects in the next little while? Well, there's about 440 municipalities across uh, the province. Um, I'll be heading down uh, to the AMO conference where all the municipalities will gather uh, late August uh, in Ottawa, so we'll get a better understanding of uh, where every council is across the province with their requests and asks. 
Um, obviously, there are hundreds, if not thousands, of requests uh, across the province, whether it's from our municipal partners to uh, the Ministry of Health, Ministry of Education, um, uh, for infrastructure projects. And uh, it's going to be our job as government um, to get value for money for taxpayers and to uh, set a list of priorities to how best uh, spend this money to ensure that there's uh, an economic benefit. We can uh, leverage infrastructure to create jobs in Ontario. And those are some of the things that we'll be doing uh, over the months ahead. No doubt the letters B, R, and T will come up at that particular conference. I'm sure there'll be uh, (laughs) a lot of projects like that right across the province, for sure. Well, we look forward to seeing what comes out of it. And Mr. McNaughton, again, congratulations on the appointment, so well-deserved. And we'll talk again. Well, thank you very much, and happy to join your uh, show anytime. Take care. Thanks. That is the Minister of Infrastructure, Monty McNaughton. You know what I forgot to ask him? How you celebrate becoming the Minister of Infrastructure. Is it one of those things that you can actually have a celebration? Is it a bottle of champagne kind of thing? Or is it just, hey, this is the job, this is the business, here we go. Next time, we'll ask. That is Lambton, Kent, Middlesex MPP, Monty McNaughton. Speaking of B-R-N-T, in a moment, we will talk with Ward 4 Councillor Jesse Helmer because electric buses came up yesterday. Would this be a thing that blends well with BRT? We still have to find out. And again, Monty McNaughton is not going to be able to tell us right now, hey, X amount of dollars are being sent to this, and yes, our government believes in doing that, and this is going to happen, so BRT from the provincial end looks good. They do have to look at all of these projects. As he outlined, how would you like to have 440 municipalities dropped in your lap? I'd still be learning how to spell each and every one of the names by now. But he's going to dig into what some of the requests are from each of them. And in London, Ontario, those letters are at the top of the list. Next up, Jesse Helmer on electric buses and new routes for workers who were not serviced before by London Transit. This is London Live on a Friday. My name is Mike Stubbs. You're listening to Global News Radio 980 CFPL. It is a beautiful Friday. Looks like a beautiful weekend. No humidity. Then things start to ramp up a little bit. Call it something like summertime. Good time to be out and about, and we're talking about getting out and about right now. Ward 4 Councillor Jesse Helmer joins us as we kind of get the next stages going forward on BR&T. Councillor Helmer, how are things? Good, Mike. Thanks for having me on. Electric buses came up yesterday. Take us back to what prompted that. Well, back when we were initially developing the plans for uh, rapid transit, as you know, we were looking at the hybrid uh, uh, system, which would have had some uh, light rail transit and some buses. Uh, And when we decided eventually to go with buses only, uh, Council put on a uh, uh, preference to have fully electric buses. So this is an area, obviously, that is emerging, uh, as we see with electric vehicles uh, generally. And we knew that as we're going through the planning process over a number of years, that this is going to be an option. Uh, so we put that in the um, direction uh, a couple of years ago to say, let's look at electric vehicles. And so just recently we had the executive director of Qtric, which is a research consortium that looks at urban transit, basically the leading expert on this issue uh, in Canada and frankly in, in North America, Josepha Petrunik, uh, in to talk to us about her team's modeling of what would it mean for London if we were to switch the diesel buses that are in the current business plan uh, for a rapid transit to electric. 
um, and what would it mean in terms of the operating costs and energy cost savings, uh, the experience of, of actually riding the bus, and so forth. And it was a really excellent presentation. It turns out that it's a uh, home run of an idea that's going to save us a ton of money and make the quality of service uh, even better. So it was really good uh, news. Really glad to hear from them and the results of their very detailed modeling, not just of the length of the routes, but even things as detailed as the topography, so how, how hilly is the, the routes that the buses will be running on. So does it wind up being an investment to get something like this, or when a bus that we have needs to be replaced, do we use this kind of a bus instead? How does that work? Yeah, so we, in the business case for rapid transit, we budgeted for um, uh, buses costing about a million dollars each. So that's more than what a diesel bus now costs. Uh, we put in the larger number because we wanted to make sure that we were being conservative and that we are allowing for the possibility of buying electric buses, which cost a bit more up front, uh, but save a lot of money in operating. And just to give you a sense of the operating cost savings, this is just on the energy side. Since using um, hydro instead of diesel uh, saves $900,000 a year in energy costs uh, just on the two rapid transit routes. That's not the rest of the fleet. Uh, I think there would be a similar kind of compelling business case for electrifying the rest of the fleet. But for the rapid transit routes, which is specifically what this QTRIC research consortium was looking at, uh, the savings compared to the diesel operation is $900,000 a year. So you add that up over the course of you know, the 12-year lifespan that we might have a bus in operation. Sometimes they go a bit longer than that. Um, that's a lot of money saved. And, and frankly, it's money that's now going to uh, London Hydro instead of, uh, you know, buying diesel gas. So, you know, I think there's a lot of uh, benefits to electrification from a cost perspective. It's uh, probably the single best thing I've seen uh, on this project. It's essentially saying you can have uh, LRT-like operating costs uh, without having to put in all the really expensive infrastructure of LRT, that, like the rail infrastructure. And from a quality of ride exp- uh, perspective, the smooth acceleration that comes from an electric bus, I've been on a couple of them uh, in Canada where they're in operation, it's very different from what you get with a diesel bus, and the and the quietness of operation is just unbelievable. So you'll hear things now like the air conditioner on the bus, uh, which previously you couldn't even hear that running because it was being overwhelmed by the sound of the diesel engine. So it's a lot quieter. It's a lot more pleasant experience. It's smoother. Uh, the acceleration and deceleration is, is awesome. And the modeling was done... Uh, with it running in dedicated lanes. And one thing I think was really important from what we heard from Joseva Petrunik um, on that was, you know, the starting and stopping of running in mixed traffic has real cost implications for electric buses and for diesel buses for that matter. So the more you're stopping and starting, uh, decelerating and accelerating, the more expensive it gets. And you can see how much more when she looked at the charging time. So these buses are designed to charge at the end of their route. So you have to connect to an overhead charger for three or three and a half minutes to keep the battery uh, running at a high enough level. So at the end of the route, you just pause for three, three and a half minutes, uh, which buses do now anyway, and uh, continue on. To do that, if you were doing it in mixed traffic, she said it'd be more like five minutes. And so that's what that's telling us is that they're using a lot more power uh, on the routes if they're running in mixed traffic, and then it's going to be a lot more expensive uh, to run them. And some of those $900,000 in cost savings, probably half or more, I would be gone if they're running in mixed traffic. So I think, you know, the dedicated lanes are obviously good for reliability and the quality of the service, but they also save money. And I think that's really important for folks to remember because it's the taxpayers of the city of London and the province of Ontario who are paying for the operating costs of uh, transit along with the fare riders. And uh, we want to keep those operating costs as low as possible. 
well, uh, in the long term especially. As things continue to move forward toward the election, because we know, hey, the ultimate decision will come after the election, this this adds a whole lot of fodder to it. Now, one last thing before we go, Councillor Helmer, we're talking with Ward 4 Councillor Jesse Helmer. That is the areas that have not been serviced by LTC that are now finding ways to be serviced by LTC. What can you tell us there? I think we're making good progress on that front. Uh, we had a transit summit uh, with some employers uh, in, the, in the industrial areas, um, as well as uh, some. Ta- there was a taxi company that attended. It was Green Taxi, um, LEDC, some city councillors, a staff from the Transit Commission, and we sat down to kind of nail out, you know, what are the different options uh, beyond fixed route transit. You know, that's the that's what we're operating now um, throughout the city, and and it works really well in some places, and it doesn't work so well in in other places. And I think we're going to have to come up with some more innovative approaches. I think the one that's really promising in my mind and the Transit Commission is moving forward, um, coming forward with some pilots on this front uh, for the 2019 year. Uh, we just dealt, we dealt with that earlier this month. Um, do some uh, piloting around first mile, last mile to try and get some transferring to, say, cab or a limo or an Uber uh, so that people can get to the transit and get from transit and get to their workplace um, in a kind of connected, interconnected kind of way. So it's like one experience rather than, having to pay a separate taxi fare and all these different things. So we have to work that out financially. I think it will require some participation from the industrial employers that put some money on the table to help their employees uh, get to work, those who are not driving, and then some uh, innovation on the side of the Transit Commission uh, to make that all happen. I'm very encouraged by where we're headed on that front. I think we're going to be able to solve uh, some of these problems for the industrial employers, especially getting some of their uh, new employees. People are joining for the first time. People are coming out for job interviews to get out there and get connected into employment. It's a long-standing problem, and I think we've made more progress uh, in the last year than we have for quite a few number of years. And the options that are available to us now, frankly, are a lot better than they were uh, years ago because the private sector has really innovated and, and made some things available now that just weren't possible before. Sounds good. Councillor Helmer, thanks for the update. Thank you, Mike. Take care. Ward 4 Councillor Jesse Helmer. News is next with Jacqueline LaBelle. This is London Live on Global News Radio 980 CFPL. In the last few minutes, a lot of reports that RCMP have made an arrest in the Humboldt Broncos bus crash and that we will know more at about 3 this afternoon. So we'll be sure to have that for you if, in fact, those reports are true. So that's coming up at about 3 o'clock. 2 o'clock. Brazil, Belgium at the World Cup of Soccer. And next on London Live, we're going to speak with Dave Alexander. And he's becoming famous pretty quickly. What's he done? Well, six years ago, he got his hands on a McDonald's cheeseburger. And he never let it go. And now it's on eBay. We'll bring you the story next. This is London Live on Global News Radio, 980 CFPL. Okay, we have verified it. There is a release from Saskatchewan RCMP. Charges laid in Humboldt Bronco bus collision investigation is what it is titled. And an update is coming at 1 o'clock Saskatchewan time. That is 3 o'clock our time. And we'll have details on that as they become available. This is London Live. My name is Mike Stubbs. And it's time to talk about a strange story that you're sure to hear more about between now and when the eBay bidding stops. Joining us is Dave Alexander. Dave lives just north of London on a farm. And Dave, you own something 
that you've had for years. We're going to find out why you have it. We're going to find out where you keep it. But first, you have to describe what this is. Yes, it's a six-year, just a a bit over six-year-old McDonald's cheeseburger, plain cheeseburger and uh, small fries that I've had since June 7th, 2012. June 7th, 2012. Significant day in your life for any reason? Is that why you hung on to it? No, not at all. It was just uh, purely out of curiosity. I had I had heard rumors about these things not going bad, and I thought it. I I've be, we live on a farm, and uh, when things that we grow here go bad regularly, and I thought it was an urban legend. So I asked my daughter to pick me up a uh, cheeseburger and fries when she was going into town. And when she got back, I took it out of the wrapper, I took the top of the bun off, and I put it on a shelf, which was actually a speaker cabinet, in my uh, office here, and it sat there for just over six years. And uh, now we're downsizing, and I thought, I'm not taking this cheeseburger with me. So <laughs> so, so that's, uh, that's how this all happened. And suddenly, it's on eBay. So where was it purchased? You mentioned your daughter went into town. She came to London? I believe she went to London, yep, um, to the McDonald's. Uh, there's a McDonald's. I'm not super-duper familiar with London. I'm from Waterloo. Um, but, uh, yeah, her boyfriend was from London. And so she went to the McDonald's there, um, yeah, and picked it up. And uh, it turns out it was not an urban legend. The thing is, the thing looks like it was purchased yesterday it's uh it's still intact um especially the fries the fries are perfect now when you say perfect are you looking at those saying boy i'd like a fry no (laughs) not not at all the the uh the bun it the bun looks exactly the same as the day it was purchased it's just gotten it's as hard as a hockey puck though it it got rock hard the um the meat kind of went a bit flat, but it still looks like a meat patty. The I'm not sure what you would call it, the, the slice of stuff they call cheese, I guess, that they put on those things. It's American cheese, so I'm not sure how much dairy is in it. It went a bit on the brown side, and I would say that's the most damage, other than being covered by six years of dust, um, because I didn't touch it. I was I was a bit afraid to touch it. Um, because I didn't want the oils on my skin to affect this little minor experiment. Um, I just wanted to see what would happen over time if it was completely untouched. And so I've been staring at it uh, over top of my computer screen for the last six years. Yeah. (laughs) We're talking with Dave Alexander, who has a burger on eBay purchased in London by his daughter that has been sitting around for six years. Dave, a lot of people would eventually look at that thing and say, you know what, Uh, i got to just sweep this into a garbage right here and let nature have this prize. You say you've been looking at it. Did you have any idea how long you might want to keep it? Was it it a six-year experiment? Was it a ten-year experiment? I was going to just keep it as long as it took but it, it and apparently nature doesn't want it <laughs> it's 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 the most it's the strangest thing like i say we live on a farm and to this very day we have never seen a fly land on it it will they it, they just avoid it like i it's it's the weirdest thing 
So um, well, I was just going to keep it indefinitely as long as we lived here, but we're downsizing, and so that's, that's how that happened. Dave, on food, sometimes you get mold growth. Any sign of mold anywhere? None whatsoever. Zero. The, there is no mold. There's no anything, really. It's just, it looks, it looks like um, time is maybe going to take its toll eventually, especially with the cheese slice, but other than that, the bun, the, the meat patty. And I specifically asked my daughter when she bought it not to get any toppings. I, I didn't want, you know, contaminated by relish or pickle or tomato or anything like that. So, I, so it's just a plain burger with a cheese slice on it, and that's it. And nature does not want it <laughs> at all. Well, other people seem to want it because you've put it on yeah. eBay and you've opened it up for bids. What kind of a reaction have you had? Well, it's been strange. And everybody, the first question people are asking is, why did I put $29 on it? Because um, it's not worth $29. And I wasn't expecting to get anything for it. I just wondered if somebody you know, on the other side of the planet, decided to buy it, I wanted to at least cover the postage fee. So that was the reason behind the $29. And when I woke up this morning, it was at $51. So it looks like the fees will be covered um, exponentially. And so no problem. How long is the bidding going to go on? Yeah, that's the weird thing. It I, I just used the default settings, which is seven days, and it was only put up... 12 hours ago, something something like that. So it, it will be interesting to see who <laughs> who wants a six-year-old cheeseburger. Um, I did get a tweet from somebody this morning that wanted to trade me for a two-year-old, um, but I declined that. For a two-year-old? Sorry, your, your phone cut up. You, you, uh, you got a, a tweet this morning that said what? Somebody has a two-year-old Timbit that, uh, that was willing to trade, I guess. <laughs> and you said no. Would there be any aged food at all that you would look at and say, you know what, I will take that deal? Spaghetti? No. No? No, unless it's good aged cheese, wine, or sausage or something like that that's edible. But And I have had questions that, that people are asking if this is edible, and I would highly recommend not. This thing looks perfectly edible. But it's been sitting in the dust for six years. So don't, don't eat this thing. So next Thursday, the bidding ends. You're at $51 yes. now. We'll see where you get to. Can we check back in with you next Thursday? Please do. I'd appreciate that. Dave, this is fantastic. Thank you so much for performing the experiment and then for turning this into something even bigger. <laughs> Thank you so much for your call. Dave Alexander. Owner of a six-year-old McDonald's cheeseburger from London, and this is becoming the most famous cheeseburger ever to be a cheeseburger. We will check back on that. As a very fast Friday continues, Nikki Reitmeyer is going to join us next on London Live. She's the host of This Is Why, and we're going to discuss something a whole lot deeper and darker than whatever that cheese is or has become on the top of that cheeseburger. We're going to discuss gang violence in Canada. This is Global News Radio 980 CFPL. There is a relatively new podcast out there. And if you listen to any podcasts, this is one that, I don't know, it's gripped me. 
I've listened to all the episodes so far because you just you find one and then you find another and then you think, oh, I'm going to listen to this. It's called This Is Why, and it takes Canadian stories and then digs deeper into them. If you've listened to Daily from the New York Times, that's the best example I can give you for what it's like. Well, we're lucky enough to have the host of This Is Why with us, Nikki Wright-Mayer. And we're going to discuss the latest episode as Nikki joins us, which is on gang violence in Canada. Nikki, thanks so much for being here. How are you? I'm doing well. So happy to join you. Well, it's great to have you. Anybody who has not heard what you are doing needs to do that. It's called This Is Why. And I love how you dig into things, especially when when you look at some of the topics. And as much as we live in London, Ontario, and gun violence is not necessarily front and center, we certainly hear the stories coming out of Toronto. We certainly hear the stories coming out of other parts of the country. When you started looking into this, were you ready for what you heard? Not necessarily. I mean, I grew up in British Columbia, near Surrey, which is a part of the country that is that is really bad for gun violence and for gang violence. And, you know, I kind of heard the stories, but I guess maybe I just lived in a bubble. I grew up in the suburbs. I thought, you know, gang violence is something that affects other people. But now, you know, in this modern era, it seems that gang violence touches a lot of people, and whether it touches us directly, because, you know, you live in a major city like a Toronto or a Vancouver that is, you know, directly affected by the gunfire, or just as for everyone else in the country, as Canadians, you know, we have this perception that Canada is a relatively safe place. You know, there might be incidents here and there, but I think that when we hear about gang violence and how predominant it is now in our culture and our society, it really shakes who we are. It rattles our national identity because we think that's an American thing. That's a Chicago thing. You know, we don't have gangs here in Canada, but man, oh man, do we ever. So I think it affects so many people in different ways, whether you're directly affected by the violence or whether this is just making you question your national identity. So when I dug into this topic, for me, it really did both. We were able to speak to a gangster firsthand who who talked about his experiences. And, and for me, that was wildly fascinating to learn why someone would even want to join a gang for the first place. I mean, for me, it seems so bizarre to do, but it was very much a part of his culture, and now he's trying to escape it. And on the other hand, it made me question the normalcy of gang violence in Canada. We're talking with Nikki Reitmeyer. She is the host of This Is Why, and it's a podcast you can find on Apple Podcasts, on Google Podcasts, or anywhere else that you find your podcasts. And there is a fascinating, you can go through an entire library of podcasts, obviously, but there is a fascinating one on gun violence, and it's something you don't want to believe is a part of your country. Nikki, when we're looking to talk to people, if you want to talk to a politician, no problem. It's very easy to find somebody in politics who is willing to talk and tell you what they think. A gang member. How do you find a gang member who wants to tell you their story? I have a very good producer who works behind the scenes who can track down almost anybody, I swear. He was able to wrangle this gang member on conditions. One of the conditions was that we had to disguise his name. The other condition was that we had to disguise his voice as well. He said to us that he's afraid if people find out his real identity, that he's going to walk out of the studio 
and get a bullet in the back. So he says, look, I'm willing to talk. I'm willing to come into your studio and sit down in front of a microphone because I think it's important to get this message across that I don't want other people to follow in my footsteps. He goes, but you got to disguise who I am because I'm worried that there's going to be a hit out for me if anyone is to figure out who I really am when they hear this on the radio or when they hear this in a podcast. He was so emotional and so passionate about telling people not to join gangs, not to follow in his footsteps, that during the interview, and, and you can hear it in the podcast, he actually breaks down in tears at one point. He says, you know, when I was coming here today, I was, I was looking at some old photos on Facebook of my friends who have been killed, most of my friends who have been killed, and he said, I just can't do this anymore. And, and he literally broke down in tears while he was talking to us, this, this gangster, this guy covered in tattoos, breaking down in tears in front of you saying, I, I can't do this anymore. One of the things that he touches on was when he got into, I guess, the gang culture, he thought it would be different. He thought it would be about brotherhood and and solidarity and that it isn't. If we're going to describe what gang life is like based on what you found, what is it that, that you uncovered that you would say, wow, I, I didn't know that? Yeah. Isn't that always the case, though? It, you know, kids, when they get into gangs, promise that it's going to be it's going to be girls and it's going to be you know money and it's going to be drugs and it's going to be cars. And then they start to learn, as the gangster that we spoke to learned, that, you know, eventually you're supposed to go out and hurt people. And then you, it goes further than that. You're supposed to go out and kill people. And then eventually the person who has a target on their back isn't the enemy anymore. It's someone that you consider to be a friend. And he said, Gang life is treachery. And I thought that word was really interesting. It's treachery because it, it seems fine on the one hand. You know, you know your task. You're a gangster. You're an enforcer. You know your role. But little do you know that there, you're just a cog in the wheel when you're a gangster. There's guys above you who are really pulling the strings. And they have an agenda outside of your own. And that agenda is treacherous. So for anyone who thinks that gang life is glamorous and that suddenly you're in control, that's not the case. That's not what I learned from this anyways. It's that a friend can turn on you, someone you trust can turn on you and very quickly put you in the grave. Nikki, you were also able to speak with other people, an author. You were able to to delve into maybe what this gang culture is like in Canada. How dangerous do you think it actually is in this country? Yeah, I, I think it's, I mean, obviously in the, in the larger city centers, it's it's dangerous, and it's dangerous if you're a gangster, of course. But what we're seeing is young people who you consider some degree to be innocent. I mean, the young people that are being influenced to join these gangs, and they're being killed at 16, 17 years old. And then you have the innocent bystanders as well, and there's very much... Uh, a risk for a person who's, you know, walking down the street now in any major city center because God knows when the bullets are going to start flying. And some of the most dangerous gangs, like the Hells Angels, well, they're pretty accurate with their hits. You know, they're, they're, they're targeting another gang member, and that's usually who they're going after. But then you have other gangs who are a little bit sloppy. In fact, the expert that you were speaking about there, he's uh, an, uh, an award-winning crime writer named James Dubrow, and I asked him that question. I said, who's the most dangerous gang in Canada? And he goes, well, most dangerous gang in Canada are the, the gangs that don't shoot very well. They're the most ga- dangerous <laughs> gangs in all of Canada. 
Wow. And doesn't that say it? Well, this podcast is available, and you can check that out again at Apple Podcast, at Google Podcast, or wherever else you happen to find your podcast. Nikki, for anybody who's maybe new to This Is Why, can you delve into what you aim to do on each episode? Yeah, so every episode, we're going to take a story that was big in the news in Canada that week. We really try to keep it Canadian-focused and nationally-focused, so we all have an interest, an invested interest in what's being talked about, you know, not just the big cities like Toronto, and we want to peel back the history behind that news story. We want to learn, too, you know, what our listeners are learning along with us. We want to talk to experts, talk to people who have those firsthand experiences, and really learn about the context of a story, the, the how did we get here, so that by the end, you know, you can form an educated opinion on what's happening in the news. We love to have opinions on things so much better when that opinion is actually educated and informed. So that's really the goal of this podcast, is to speak to people in the know, to dig a little deeper, to look at the history, to add the context, so that all of us can walk away with a bigger and better and more wholesome understanding of what's happening in Canadian news. Amazing stuff. Nikki, I'm already looking forward to the next one. Thank you so much. It was such a pleasure chatting with you. Nikki Reidmeyer. This is Why is the name of the podcast if you want to check it out. News is next with Jacqueline LaBelle. You're listening to Global News Radio 980 CFPL. You heard from Jacqueline LaBelle in news that in an hour they are going to have more details on an announcement out of Saskatchewan that an arrest was made this morning in connection with the Humboldt Broncos bus crash. So immediately you start thinking, well, is it the trucking company? Is it the truck driver? We don't know yet, but we should know at about 3 o'clock Eastern time, and we'll bring that information to you. Absolutely shattering story even still. But they have finished up a very lengthy investigation, at least part of it, to the point that they felt comfortable in making an arrest, and that is what has taken place. Also this hour, we are going to be talking with Steve and Caleb Boyle. Caleb is eight. He's from London, and he's a member of Team Canada in karate. So that's coming up in about a half hour. We are also keeping close tabs on Brazil and Belgium, the second quarterfinal of four quarterfinals at the World Cup of Soccer. Brazil just had a ball go off the goalpost. Belgium is a team that was down 2-0 to Japan, and time was ticking away, and all of a sudden they went, you know, if we try this thing called offense, I think we've got a shot. And it worked. Bing, bing, bing. Well, bing, bing. And then in the final minute, the keeper for Belgium has the ball in his hand. Think of how big a soccer field is. So the keeper has the ball in his hand, and they're basically in the final minute of injury time, and he could have just held on to it or booted it away, and they could have gone into extra time, and they would have said, whoa, we were down 2 nothing. Wow, that's great. Instead, he rolls it forward, and Belgium flies up the field and scores the game winner. And that's why they're here against Brazil right now. So nil-nil, and they are in the ninth minute at the moment. There is a topic that comes up again and again because it's something that we don't want to believe exists in Canada, in Ontario, in our own backyard. We don't want to believe it. Hallway medicine? No. Not here. 
That's for developing countries. There's no way we have hallway medicine. Even when you hear stories, it's still hard to believe that unless you've been through it, hallway medicine exists. Doctors treating patients in hallways because of a lack of beds, because of an overabundance of patients, whatever the case may be. But it does exist. And we can find a whole lot of examples. You've heard from some of them on 980 CFPL before. They do exist. So if this is an issue, the next question is what to do about it. How do we deal with this? And it was something that was basically talked about a lot on the campaign trail. And Premier Doug Ford had said he is going to address this. And we got a tweet from Western Neb last hour. And he alerted us to the story that came out today regarding Premier Doug Ford appointing Dr. Ruben Devlin, who has been called an advisor to the PC party, chair of the council as the special advisor on health care. And he's going to get just shy of $350,000 a year in salary, plus expenses. So I'm willing to not jump up and down about this because, hey, if this person can come up with some good ideas, if we can revamp our health care system, if we can put an end to hallway medicine, great. In the meantime, we have had researchers here in this very city at Western University who have been studying hallway medicine and the issues that go into it, not just in hospitals here, but in Canadian hospitals, period. Dr. David Stanford is from Western University. He and some former PhD students have been dealing with this, and they are about to have their findings published by the European Journal of Operational Research. You may not subscribe to that, but if you are in the medical field, it's one of those reads that you make sure you pay attention to. We're lucky enough to have Dr. Stanford with us right now. Dr. Stanford, how are things? I'm just fine, Mike. Thank you very much for the intro. Well, let's begin with a little something that takes us into some statistics. And the statistics deal with a focus on wait times. Now, these statistics, you could say, are getting to be a little, maybe a little outdated, but we deal with what we have. They come from 2012, came from the Canadian Institute for Health Information. And they said that emergency rooms in Canada have a target for the triage and acuity score in the urgent category of treating these kind of individuals, 90% of them within 30 minutes. That's the target. That, that's the guideline they're trying to reach. Yeah. Okay. So they, they, if somebody comes in and they are listed as urgent and then they all, everybody who's been to the emergency room knows you have to sit there and triage and say, well, it hurts right here. And the guy behind you all of a sudden says, well, it's bleeding right here. He usually gets a higher score than you and he's a little bit more urgent than you. And in he goes. So they say they want to treat 90% of those patients within 30 minutes of their arrival. You've looked at this what did you find? So the uh, the rather depressing fact in the hospital that we were able to get data from uh, is that only 9.2% is the observed compliance during 2012 and 2013, meaning over the two-year period when you counted everybody and how long they waited, only 9.2% of those that category of uh, Canadian triage and acuity score patients were seen in the urgent category within 30 minutes. 
okay, let's let's go through that again because because that sounds very different than the target. The target yeah, is ninety percent, and you are saying that the reality is. Nine percent. Yes, that's right. Nine percent was indeed the number. And uh, I also need to stress here that the reason why it's 2012 and 2013 data is just that due to privacy laws, it's extremely hard to get a data set. So the more mathematical aspects of the paper that's being released today uh, on the journal that you referred to said, okay, well, before we publish this, we'd like you to apply to some data. So the data we had access to that we could legitimately use was this data set of 88,000 patient visits over those two years. So it's not like some small sample, 300 student, uh, 300 peer person study. It's a much larger sample than that. Is there a way to delve into the data and try and figure out why it's so off? Yeah, well, actually, most the data isn't going to tell you this, but I've had numerous conversations with emergency room physicians. There's some great doctors across the country from Dr. David Petrie in Halifax to Dr. Lesfer Tessie in Vancouver. Right here, we've got a real specialist in the person of Dr. John Dreyer at LHSC. And uh, Dr. Aleem Pardan is a co-author on this study. He's from Hamilton. Uh, so we've got really good doc brains. What they're telling you, or telling me, and uh, telling all of us, is that the way that they fund the physician hours, they do a simple accounting approach where they just say, here's my patient load. I've got this many patients coming in. It takes this long on average to treat them. I multiply this by this, and I come up with, let's say, okay, 2,572 hours. Okay, you're now funded for the coming year to staff 2,572 hours of doc time. And the problem is that means that's those are docs running at 100% occupancy. They're working all the time. And that's the number one rule of queuing theory, the math that I work in, you cannot run a system like that. You're just going to have these huge delays that we're looking at. And, you know, the reality is what uh, you've experienced, and I'm sure your callers have experienced as well. We're talking right now with Dr. David Stanford from Western University, and we are looking at something that is being published in the European Journal of Operational Research, which has studied wait times and studied, essentially, hallway medicine, and has found that, hey, what the Canadian Institute for Health Information shows is that for the goal of treating 90% of patients tabbed as being urgent within 30 minutes, they're actually getting to about 9.2%. So is it, and we've heard about this model before, Dr. Stanford, is it looking at the fact that the model for funding doctors in this country needs a major adjustment? Okay, certainly the model for funding physician hours in ER, that certainly needs to be seen. They need to fund more hours, but they don't have to fund radically more hours. They just can't do this accounting approach. They have to do a little bit more math to get to that point. Um, the larger issue is also funding the beds. You're probably familiar with the fact that the, the ward beds in hospitals typically boast numbers like 100 or 105 percent, meaning they're using facilities that aren't really meant to be hospital beds during some transition when somebody's coming out and somebody's going in. And that's actually the single biggest problem is the fact that they can't get people out of eMERGE into the beds. The government, uh, and I think all the parties agreed on this in the recent election, did point out that there is an associated problem with a lack of long-term care beds because even in the wards they're trying to get people out and there's something like 30% what's called alternative level of care, which means it's a fancy way to say patients in beds that are beyond their medical time. They don't really have any medical reason to stay there, but the thing that's supposed to take them is the next facility is not ready to receive them. So that's uh, part of the problem as well. 
But the biggest one here is we consider it a good thing that, you know, we look at us how efficient we're being. We're at 100 percent occupancy. And again, it keeps coming back to the number one truth of queuing theory that when you are working with systems subject to random demand, you know, you're not going to say to somebody, uh, Mr. Smith, um, you're scheduled for a massive coronary next Tuesday at 2.30. Please be sure to be in the emergency department when it happens. I mean, we all recognize how ridiculous that statement is, but we don't get the ridiculousness of thinking that we can somehow shove all of this into 110% occupancy. Now, if we're to explore what to do, because you've looked at basically issues with with queuing, with lining people up, with determining right. who goes first and who goes next. That's right. What do you suggest? Okay, so uh, so the first thing, the number one thing, uh, the, the lead words on the article are that it's talking about what are called key performance syndicators, a bunch of systems where you say... Um, that you are going to meet all sorts of uh, different delays. So like, for instance, you just gave an example of a KPI, which is for this group, which is called CTAS-3, Canadian Triage and Acuity Score. That's the largest group in the middle category, the urgent category. At least half of the, the patient load in eMERGE is coming in as CTAS-3. 90% are to be seen by 30 minutes. Well, in general, when you're looking at these systems, you just can't get anywhere with having this type of response. So you need some sort of incentive to try to attribute, give people credit for how long they're waiting, but you do these credits in such a way that you're mindful of how sick the patient is. So you're not going to say, like, first come, first served, well, this person's got a stubbed toe and that person is just not breathing. So, well, you're obviously going to go to the person who's not breathing, right? So, but the I'm sort of going around about what I'm really trying to get to the point here is you try and get the patients to be seen in a timely fashion that's in accordance with how sick they are. Okay. Now, we may look at this and say, well, aren't they doing that now? They have a model, obviously. What's wrong with the model? Yeah, the model is based, um, Dr. Dave Petrie was the first person to point this out from the doctor's side, so you don't need a queuing theorist to tell you this. Um, but he said his reference, and he'll back me up on this, and he says you don't pitch a tent at a campsite at mid-tide between low tide and high tide because you know when the high tide comes, it's going to swamp you. Yet everything we do in the healthcare system is dealing to the average. So no, the existing model is not using any advanced. It's just the old spigot that, oh, we don't have enough money. Let's put more money into it. It's just all on an accounting-style basis, and it needs to factor in these sorts of randomness. And there's no shortage of people across the country, industrial engineers, and other talented people who can assist the doctors and the decision-makers, but they're just not called upon. And that's really what I'm hoping that in the context of this new government is something that is going to go on, that the talented people are going to be brought into the decision-making process to inform people on what the consequences of these actions are. And perhaps is that maybe what we've seen today in the appointment of someone who will oversee something that's aimed at hallway medicine? We'll see. Yes, exactly. Yes. Yes. I'm, I'm very hopeful, actually. I'm particularly hopeful because um, personally, I believe that, uh, you know, Minister Elliott, uh, I think everybody, right going back to when there was a leadership campaign on, everybody was talking about Christine Elliott's talents. I think that putting her into this uh, tough job of being health minister, I, I've, I've got good hopes that this is going to go somewhere. I'm saying that not as a political point, because 
well, I may as well declare I didn't vote for any of the major parties on this election. I went in a different direction with my vote. But I certainly have every admiration for people of goodwill who are trying to do the best, and that's the category that I would put Christine Elliott into. Well, if you missed the story that we were talking about, Dr. Ruben Devlin has been named chair of the council and as the special advisor on health care and ending hallway medicine, which is what we're talking about right now with David Stanford from Western University. Dr. Stanford, just one last thing. How are you going to monitor this situation to see whether or not things are, are maybe falling into place and, and we're seeing better use of a system that would end wait times? Well, right now I'd say there's a consortium. I mean, that sounds like a very formal word, an informal consortium of emerge docs and uh, people like myself with the sort of skills that I've got who are determined to try and work this out. So we can work on it from the ground up through the local hospitals where you've got dedicated people trying to do the best that they possibly can. Um, it certainly would help if there were some recognition from on high from the government that this is something that can be done. Uh, and uh, so, you know, I certainly wouldn't mind getting a call if it turns out that somebody feels they're willing to take a look at this particular line. All right. Well, Dr. Thank Stanford, you, thanks so much for the time. It's a great pleasure. A great job on the interview. I want to thank you for that, for giving a balanced view on it, and I uh, wish all your listeners a uh, pleasant afternoon. All the best. Have a great weekend. Thank you. You too. Bye-bye. That is Dr. David Stanford from Western University. So, essentially, here's the issue as far as this study goes with long wait times, especially if we look at emergency rooms. You have an urgent category. The goal is to have 90% of patients who get an acuity score or a triage score of urgent seen in 30 minutes. They want to get 90% of those patients being seen by a doctor within 30 minutes. And based on the data set, the actual number is 9.2%. So something is not working. So the idea that Dr. Stanford and his students have put forward is to make some changes to how that is looked at and that that's where the issue is. And again, we've hopefully got a revamping of some things in health coming in Ontario. And it's going to remain to be seen whether it happens, how quickly it happens. I mean, we've heard it from a lot of governments before. Hey, here's what we're going to do. We're going to fix health care. Yeah, okay. And then the Lins were brought in. And then the idea of, well, we've got to be more like England or we've got to be more like this country. Okay, well, we just need everybody to, to get on the same page, it seems, because we've got a lot of pages. And when we have a lot of pages, you wind up shuffling papers and you never get anything read. I don't want to see that continue. We'll come back in a moment let you know what is still to come on the show. We can update you if you are a World Cup soccer fan and you're PVRing. We're about to give the score, just so you know. Okay, you ready? Your fingers in the ears. La, la, la. They are in the 25th minute right now. Belgium 1, Brazil 17. No, Belgium 1, Brazil nil. Brazil nothing. Belgium's winning. This is London Live, and you're listening to Global News Radio 980 CFPL. There is a news conference coming up at 3 o'clock. Charges have been laid. An arrest has been made, according to Saskatchewan RCMP, in the Humboldt Broncos bus crash. And that RCMP news conference is going to be carried live 
on 980 CFPL starting at 3 o'clock. So not only will we bring you the information, we'll bring you the information as it comes out. So that's coming up in a half hour from now. In the meantime, we are still going to chat with Steve and Caleb Boyle. And we'll talk a little father-son stuff. It's not Father's Day this weekend, but this is a good Father's Day story. We didn't have time to save it until next Father's Day. And also, a kid who will amaze you and we'll only let him get to the letter B. That's coming up as well. News is next with Jacqueline LaBelle. This is Global News Radio 980 CFPL. couple of things to get caught up on. We talked last hour with Dave Alexander. Dave owns something that is six years old. It's not a dog. It's not a shirt. Dave owns a burger. It's a McDonald's cheeseburger that came from London, and he admitted that he wanted to try an experiment. He'd heard that over time, not much happens to a McDonald's cheeseburger. So six years ago, his daughter was in London. He said, hey, can you pick me up a cheeseburger? And he didn't put anything on it. No ketchup, no relish. No ketchup and onion mix. I love the ketchup. That's that's the onions are what makes the McDonald's burger and the pickles. That makes the burger. But he didn't have any of that stuff on it, just plain. And he kept it on his shelf for six years. And he's moving. And now he is selling this thing. You would think, what are you talking about? Scrape that into a garbage and be done with it. He's selling it. Put it on eBay. And just because our world is as wacky as it is these days, the opening bid was twenty nine ninety nine because that's what it had to be. That's what he put it at. And then it got up to $51. Well, we just checked it. We talked to Dave an hour ago. It's at $150. The bid is $150. And the bidding will continue until next Thursday. That's crazy. That's wild. There can't be anything more wild than that in the world, can there? Well, there's this kid. Check him out. Argentina, Armenia, Australia, Austria, Azerbaijan, Bahamas, Bahrain, Bangladesh, Barbados, Belarus, Belgium, Belize, Benin, Bhutan, Bolivia, Bosnia, Herzegovina, Botswana, Brazil. Yeah, he, he doesn't stop. He keeps going until he has named each and every country in the world. Apparently, when he was three years old, he started watching YouTube videos of songs that named all of the countries, and he was fascinated by them. And he learned all the countries and now he's six and making videos of his own what do you do with that exactly i mean it's good it's good memory text it's not a bad thing to keep your mind sharp but he's six his mind is a dagger he doesn't have to worry about keeping things sharp he doesn't have moments where you have to sift through all kinds of useless remembered information and try and remember something that's very insignificant. Do you turn to Google right away? My wife and I have told ourselves, no, no. If you can't remember something, you can't grab your phone. You have to dig it out. And that's why at any point during the day, one of us will just shout out, Beyonce! Because that's what we were trying to remember on Tuesday night. Fridge magnet! 
Yeah, that was Monday. Takes a while sometimes. I think it's a sign of age. Coming up next, we'll talk with another youngster who is doing some big things, and we'll talk with his dad. Steve and Caleb Boyle are going to join us. Caleb is one of the top karate artists, karateists. That's the first thing I'll have to learn. Exactly what is someone who does karate on a regular basis? That's the first question. We'll start at the beginning. But we'll find out Caleb's story. He's now part of Team Canada. Again, charges have been laid in the Humboldt Broncos bus crash. We will carry the news conference live at 3 o'clock for you. And we don't know what charges they are. We don't know who has been charged. But according to a release from Saskatchewan RCMP, an arrest was made earlier this morning. So details due to come out just after 3 o'clock, but we will take you to Saskatchewan live, and we will have that for you. This is Global News Radio, 980 CFPL. Crazy things are happening at the World Cup. Well, crazy if you thought Brazil was going to have a nice, easy time of things, making it into the semis, or maybe even winning this whole thing. We're about to give the score. Belgium 2, Brazil nothing. And Belgium just had another pretty good chance to score. Brazilian nightmare so far. We have a couple of people in this city who are doing some pretty special things in the karate world. And one of them is about to join us with his dad. Caleb is eight years old, has made Team Canada for karate, is going to the Worlds in the fall and the Junior Pan Am Games in February. And Caleb and his dad, Steve, join us now. Steve, how are things? Things are actually pretty amazing. Uh, I think every day I wake up on this side of the dirt, it's a good day. So. <laughs> well, we've got to talk about an accomplishment that you've been able to watch. I don't know how big uh, a, a, would it be a karate artist? Would it be a, a karate-er? There's a lot of things we I have to learn a, here. Um, martial artist. Martial artist. And his background is uh, um, Roshinru Karate, which is the same art that, sorry, Shorinru Karate, my apologies. And uh, this is the same art that Bruce Lee brought uh, to the world. Very nice. Now, were you involved in karate at all when you were younger? Growing up, absolutely. Just a little bit minor. I didn't get into it as much as Caleb did. However, uh, into my adult years, I did own a mixed martial arts school here in London for, for a number of years. And so you would think that really paved the way for Caleb to get involved, but it ended up being kind of a different story. What was that? It was, actually. Um, so Caleb's been watching you know, me hit heavy bags and things as a, as a young uh, guy growing up, but uh, in junior kindergarten uh, here in a school in London, uh, Caleb was actually bullied quite a bit uh, in junior kindergarten, and then by senior kindergarten, he switched gears and he actually became one of the bullies. Um, which was uh, not sitting well with mom and I, obviously. And he was getting in trouble on a daily basis and suspended constantly for fighting and uh, picking on kids and just things we just couldn't get control of. Uh, so I decided uh, at the age of four years old, I knew that he was at the age that he could actually join a karate school. So uh, we approached Family Karate here in London on uh, Wonderland and Fanshawe Park Road. And I brought him down saying, you know what, this is a place that you're going to be able to release all your your inner demons, if you will. And uh, from the very first day, he went in and he got his butt whooped by a kid smaller than him. And uh, at that point, he was addicted from that day forward. So you've owned a school. You know what kind of things can occur that might help behavior change. What do you think it was that did that? It 
was the discipline side of things uh, on the karate end, and then the, the fact that they teach that you know a martial artist uh, keeps everything very secretive. They don't initiate fights. You know, they they defend themselves and they use their. They call it you know at four years old they have a little dragons program. They call it their superpower. Um, but it was the the instructors and the um, the fact that none of these instructors would allow things like this to go on. And if if they heard about anything happening at school or they they knew of a behavioral issue, they would actually help correct it uh, as well as the parents. So sometimes it was nice just to have a a different adult um, be able to speak to the same consequences. But uh, you know sometimes Caleb took it a lot easier from a from a sensei rather than from a parent. Steve Boyle and Caleb Boyle with us on London Live, and we are going to talk about where Caleb is headed. We're going to talk to Caleb in just a moment. But, Steve, let's kind of outline how his time in karate progressed because it's one thing to put him in and look for that discipline and look for all of the good things that karate can bring. It's another thing to really excel. When did that start happening? So from four years, the day he turned four years old, he's eight now. He just turned eight in November last year. So the day he turned four, uh, he joined the karate in a little dragons program, and they're really good at doing these little. You get a stripe on your belt as you learn something new, uh, and then you progress through these eight belt levels. Um, I would say by the end of little dragons, we saw a spark in his eye that was probably at the end of year one um, that he really did have that interest more than the average kid because we were waking up at home four days a week with him practicing karate in the basement and yelling his key eyes and waking everybody in the household up. So we knew that there was something uh, about it, and then. I would say year three, um, we actually started doing some little mini tournaments around London. And these are just little competitions where they would go in and perform a kata. Uh, they would perform a weapon kata, and they might do some point sparring. Uh, and, you know, the trophy collection started at that point, And then I could see his eyes got a little brighter. Um, so we joined the competition team at year three, in which we um, spent a whole year doing bigger competitions all around Ontario. Uh, and then from that point... Um, I think karate now is part of his blood. So I would have to say uh, at year three is when it really started to showcase that uh, he had a bigger interest of going a lot further. Um, he was winning division after division after division and um, you know, being a bit biased as his dad, but he was much further ahead than most people he was competing against. And it just showed that his training and his focus and the fact that he just lived, breathed, and ate karate, um, it was starting to show pretty good. We don't have a universe competition just yet, but that means worlds tend to be the biggest in anything. He's off to worlds. He is off to worlds, which is the equivalent to uh, the Olympics for karate, if you will. Um, actually, this year, Olympics, uh, the Olympics just voted karate back into the Olympics, which is fantastic news for a lot of people in our area. But yeah, the worlds is that. Uh, so the way they go through this, they go to local tournaments, um, what they call, um, and basically they have to place in a, a top eight division to go into a provincial tournament in the provincial tournament they have to finish again top eight to go to nationals uh, my apologies uh, top four to go to nationals which is always in ottawa and then once you're in ottawa all the kids from all over canada come in and if you place in the top four division um, then you get invited on to team canada which goes to represent our country over in dublin ireland this year october 26th to november 3rd and then again in February, Caleb will also be going over to Guatemala for the Pan American Games. Whew. Caleb, what was it about karate that you liked so much? My bow mostly, and all my teammates supporting me. 
What is it like to have teammates supporting you? Because everybody always thinks karate might be a bit of a, an individual support. So tell us how that happens. Um, with my friends supporting me, just it helps all of us by if we were doing something else or doing something wrong, they could watch and correct it after if we're in like a tournament or something, for example, and we mess up a little um, after when we're done. Our teammate can be right beside us and help us get better and get that like fixed up. That's amazing. Caleb, you have already competed nationally, and now you're a part of Team Canada. When you found that out, what did you do? I screamed yes, and I'm like, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Now, do you ever get nervous in competitions? Huh? Do you ever get? Do you ever feel nervous? Yeah, my very first one, I got nervous. And then, once you started, were you still nervous, or did everything just kind of fall into place for you? It just kind of fell into place. And now, where would you like to see this go? You're already going to be going to the worlds at eight years old. Karate's back in the Olympics. What do you think? The Olympics someday? What would that be like? I want to make the Olympic team one day. Well, and that that would be really fun, and it would represent my country very well. Well, you're already doing that. So again, congratulations, uh, Caleb. As far as as what you're going to be competing in at Worlds, what events are you going to be doing? I'm going to be doing creative bow. I got alternate of this, so. We just got the call about a week ago that somebody can't go, so I can do my creative bow now and my continuous sparring. And would continuous sparring be against somebody else? It would be against somebody else, continuous flights. Once you get the point back out, and then you keep going in until the timer runs out of two minutes. Pretty amazing. Well, Caleb, best of luck. We'll have to find out how things go when you get back, all right? Yeah. Steve, when when you watch Caleb do what he does, what's that like as a dad? Um, beyond proud is is you know proud's an understatement. Um, you kind of get into this at the beginning, and you're spending your hundred bucks a month for four and a half years, and it's really good to see that that money's gone somewhere. But more importantly, I've watched this this kid go from four years old to eight years old so far, and he is. Um, Everybody that I, that meets him just says that he's something special, which is absolutely incredible. To see him be able to go into a, a nationwide stage and not show fear and not show, um, you know, uh, like he's not nervous. He's ready to go at all of these events, and he does his best, and he understands that. Uh, one of the things that he brought to my attention, which kind of stuck with me, is he's like, he's like, Dad, I never lose. I'm like, what do you mean you never lose? I'm like, and he goes, I either win something or I learn something. And he goes, and so one event he, he, he did especially not so well. And he goes, you know what, Dad, man? He's like, I just, you know, I learned a lot today, that's all. And so that attitude has kind of helped me personally in my own life to understand that you're not going to win everything either. And, uh, but, um, and, and we got a karate mom in the house, too, who's really the rock to the household. She's the one that makes sure he gets to his practices and he's to his competition team practices. And so there's definitely pride in the, in the parental role for sure. And uh, uh, his little sister is just as proud of him as we are, so. 
Great stuff. Well, we'll find out how things go. Best of luck in all the competitions going forward. Sincerely appreciate it. Thank you so much. Steve Boyle, you heard from Caleb Boyle, and just got an email saying, he's eight? Yeah, yeah, Caleb is eight. He's as well-spoken an eight-year-old guy as you are going to find. So wish him the best of luck. We'll follow and see exactly how he does. We have a news conference coming up. At 3 o'clock, we're going to take you to Saskatchewan. We'll have details on that if you have not heard them yet, and we'll close out the show next. This is Global News Radio, 980 CFPL. We'll take you to Saskatchewan. Saskatchewan RCMP announced just a short while ago with a release that an arrest has been made in the Humboldt Broncos bus crash. Charges are being filed, and we'll have details on what has come of that investigation. So we'll take you live to Saskatchewan to bring that to you. If you are headed out this weekend, can you do me a favor? Can you see how many restaurants in this area are no longer giving plastic straws? This is sweeping through very, very quickly. Not too long ago, and Craig Needles was talking with Lini Lambrink one of our reporters here at 980 CFPL this week, and talking about Lini's metal straw that she uses. And we were talking with a number of people a little while ago about straws and things, and what we found out, and this is the stat that still is hard to get your head around, if you take the number of plastic straws that are used in the United States in a day, and put them end to end, what, you go across Vermont? No, you'd go around the world two and a half times. That's how many straws are being used. And think about it. Every time you get a water at a restaurant, every time you get certain drinks at a restaurant, you know, fast food stuff, you've got all kinds of plastic straws. So please, if you are at a restaurant on a patio, if you could just take a mental note as to whether or not you're still getting a straw, because more and more places have stopped doing it. And there is one place out of the U.S. that has started doing something really different. It's an Italian restaurant, and they will offer you, you don't have to take it, but you can, pasta straws. It's a long piece of ziti. And they will stick it in your drink. I don't know whether you eat it at the end. You can. But they say they looked into paper straws, decided they weren't very good for the environment either. So they're going pasta straws because that definitely biodegrades. See how many straws you get this weekend. Thanks so much to Christian Devino and Devin Peacock for their help and to all of our guests. It's halftime at the World Cup. Brazil trails Belgium by a score of 2-0. That'll be an interesting finish if it does not change. Again, we'll take you to Saskatchewan momentarily. Jacqueline LaBelle has news as well. That's coming next on Global News Radio, 980 CFPL.